Welcome to the Samuel Andreev podcast. My guest today is the composer Ermir Bayot. Thank you so much for coming on the program. I've been looking forward to talking with you. Oh, thanks so much, Samuel. It's great to be here. I'm a fan of your podcast and uh, you're doing amazing work here. Thank you. That's really nice of you to say. I'm a fan of the work you're doing too. <laughs> so, oh, thanks. Uh, Similarly, yeah. Yeah, well, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, there's, there's a few things. So you are a composer, uh, but you're also increasingly a very prominent contributor to the ecosystem of contemporary music through Scorefollower, which is a project that you founded some time ago. And so I'd like to talk about all the different facets of your activity, certainly. Um, but maybe just to start with, for our listeners who might not be acquainted with you and with your work, maybe you could just give us a bit of a background on who you are and uh, and what you do. Yeah, so I'm originally from Albania, and uh, my musical career in a way is, I mean, it's a little bit of a mystery to me as well, because up until, you know, I studied, I stayed in Albania until 2004, and then I did my high school in Italy, in Trieste, and then from there, I immigrated and did went through college, master's, and then doctorate in the United States, and I've, I've been here ever since. But when I first got to the United States, there was no... I didn't know I was going to do music or be a composer, so it was it was just completely out of the blue. And uh, I, have a, I have an anecdote, you know, what really triggered this interest... But, uh, you know, after I took that decision, it kind of caused a lot of uh, anxiety to, to some people, including my family, which uh, had never heard of any sort of ambition, musical ambition. So this journey from Albania, you know, Italy and then U.S. kind of was, uh, and, and whatever is happening over here right now, is a little bit of some chronological journey. And then, uh, since you mentioned Score Follower, you know, that project started... I didn't actually found the channel. Uh, I wasn't a founder. Dan Tramp is, and we can talk about that. But very early on, I mean, the moment that he created Score Follower, we were studying at the same place, University of North Texas. But uh, one year later, early, you know, late 2014, early 2015, then uh, we joined as executive directors, basically, four people. And ever since, we've, we're pretty much handling the majority of the activity on the channel and the organization and so on and so forth. So, Okay, before we get into too much detail about that, though, I, I want to know more about how you got into composition, because you said that it's something that you sort of fell into. So how does one fall into composition? Well, what did you intended to do at the outset when you started pursuing studies in academia? And how did you end up getting into composition? Yeah, so I've been... Um, up until that point, I was interested in economics. I was interested in philosophy. I did a lot of reading in general. Um, I had a friend. I mean, I had you know multiple friends who were musicians, so occasionally we would just talk. But I, I just can't really remember music being a huge part of my life. So what what really happened, and it's kind of a it's kind of weird, but I started reading Arnold Schoenberg's uh, Style and Idea. I just picked it up out of nowhere and then followed with Theory of Harmony. So, and, and that's why I'm, I'm saying it's kind of a mystery to me as well. But the attraction, I mean, the sudden kind of like, um, you know, lightning bolt, like jolt that I got from reading the book and absolutely not understanding anything in the beginning. 
Um, but I just wanted to finish it. And so I finished it within maybe a week. And then the next few years was for me just all about catching up, you know, trying to understand the terms and then getting deeper and deeper. And then, uh, you know, there were there were nights where I would go to bed with, uh, I don't know, like a Votex uh, score, vocal score. And then I would wake up in the morning and then the first thing I would do is immediately open back the score and just listen to the music. So that was, it's, it's not even that long ago. This, you know, we're talking about 2000 seven maybe 2008 it was wait how old would you have been when you picked up style and idea so that was 2007 so i think uh, 1920 i find that absolutely extraordinary because style and idea not to mention the harmony lehre these are quite technical books and it sounds like you're a person with quite broad intellectual interests and you just happened upon this and it, it sort of struck uh, a chord with you, so to speak. No, no pun intended. Yeah, yeah, it did. But I, you know, Schoenberg insisted, for example, that that book, I mean, he was an autodidact himself, at least, you know, well, there's some, obviously he had some lessons and he played cello, you know, um, and and he had various influences. But I think he he wrote... Style and Idea was, you know, there are sections in that book. I mean, there's so many essays in there. So there's definitely political themes and stuff that, you know, you don't necessarily need a musical education to understand. But for Theory of Harmony, he really he really wrote that with a self-taught person in mind. And um, I've read reviews and I've had many discussions. I know a lot of people don't, you know, they, they either don't understand it or they don't agree that it's very easy for students to get into but it's always been my number one recommendation if somebody's interested in tonal music uh, I've always pointed them to theory of harmony just the way that he proceeds through the book the explanations you know how I mean even the very beginning he starts talking about triads you know where are they coming from there is a sort of kind of a dialogue or even a, a, just it, it, it's very fresh it, it doesn't seem restrictive. It, it didn't seem restrictive to me at the time. And I have to say, I was just, you know, uh, it's not like I understood it when I first read it. It was mostly the fact that there was an attraction and I couldn't understand it that kept coming back to it. And then, you know, in parallel, I was then listening and I started to uh, read all the scores. So it was kind of like a parallel study. But those, like I can date to those two books my first real interest in in music and before then i just can't really remember a time where i was um, too interested you know i mean i i had you know of course i had bands and, and music that i liked um but but that was really the first moment the thing that strikes me about the harmony book in particular is that it, he's approaching harmony from first principles thinking and he's he's trying to understand it as a phenomenon from the ground up rather than simply regurgitating a bunch of received knowledge. The other thing that is impressive about the book is he tries to explain things as phenomena, both in terms of how we perceive them, what their function is, what they do, rather than simply presenting a list of terms or a list of chord types that you memorize, that you work through progressively. And undergraduates are, are typically being given those sorts of books where it progressively walks you through 
from building simple triads to dominant sevenths through ninths and extended chords and then augmented sixth chords and so on. And it goes through the, the standard uh, repertoire of chordal formations in this progressive manner, but with, with, I think, with the intention of having the student memorize the terms, which I find to be almost completely useless because you can memorize the terms for a certain amount of time, but you'll eventually forget them, particularly right. if you don't, if you can't hear them and if you can't understand them really deeply in terms of their functions. And in my experience, most students never get to that stage. Well, yeah, it, it was, you know, at the same time as I was still working through the theory of harmony, because, you know, first of all, it's, a, it's also a wonderful ped pedagogical book. He worked, he, you know, you, you have to work through all the exercises and then he suggests like, okay, I'm just listing here C major, but, you know, go through all the keys and the way that the principles are explained is just dynamic. You know, it doesn't feel stagnant. It doesn't feel... Um, uh, it, it, that's what contributed to just seeming to me like this was a really fresh approach. I mean, you know, I, I picked it up not even knowing who Schoenberg was. Or maybe I had heard uh, some type of myths. Uh, I heard some ridiculous... Uh, one year before I picked it up, I heard a story that Schoenberg wanted to destroy music. You know, some... The, the kind of crap that you listen to, uh, maybe, of course, uninformed crap. But that was the only knowledge I had of Schoenberg. So maybe that also contributed towards me not having any, any notions on what to expect from that book. Um, the other thing about how he explains, um, you know, he doesn't really forbid you from doing things. There is a pedagogical reason for, for proceeding according to his method. Even, for example, inner, in, inner voice movements, the way that he explains it and how, you know, this is a practice that was developed by masters of the past, classical music. So that, that uh, made a lot of sense to me, basically. So, so yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, interrupt oh, no, you. But, no, no, no. But a question that comes to mind is, so you're, you're a composer in your early 30s, so you're certainly a representative of the younger generation of composers. Uh, a question that I have, that I often wonder is... To what extent do you think it is still necessary and important to acquire a solid grounding in the traditional courses of study, uh, counterpoint, harmony, analysis, etc.? I've seen two sides to this question. Some teachers feel that it's no longer necessary to go through those courses because it's so distant now from the sorts of compositional practices that you're seeing. Other teachers are convinced that it's absolutely necessary to acquire a solid historical and technical foundation. What would you say about that? I personally feel somewhere in the middle. I mean, I, I know the argument and it makes sense. You know, if you're trying to go to the moon, you know, you don't necessarily need to like ride a bike. Uh, so it, it completely depends on what you're trying to achieve. But I think, you know, this distinction between, for example, counterpoint courses and harmony. I mean, counterpoint is a method of, of composition, is a technique. So I think that's still carries some value. I'm not sure if, you know, species counterpoint beyond sort of pedagogical tool, just uh, kind of, you know, holding your hand as you're moving through the different stages. I, I can understand that. But uh, anything that's too dogmatic, it, yeah, I, I don't like that very much. So first of all, contemporary music, there is a variety of music, right? There's people actually still writing tonal music. So uh, in that sense, old methods are still very useful. 
Of course, then there is composers that have absolutely nothing to do anymore with tonal music, and that would not be very useful to them. So I, I, I'm, I feel I'm somewhere in the middle. I don't know about you in your teaching. What do you recommend actually to your students? Or you try to read maybe individually? It, yeah, it, it depends. It really does depend on the student. My, my feeling is a good rule of thumb is that you should assume that it will be useful. But you have to also approach it with a measure of caution and a measure of critical thinking. And by that, what I mean is a lot of the harmony textbooks that we have are really derived from things like Rameau and his treatise on harmony. And we still teach harmony basically the same way today. And I think it's extremely important for students to understand. And this is something that for some reason is is discussed very seldom, that at one point it was by no means a foregone conclusion that the Rameau approach to teaching harmony would become the dominant one across all of Europe. That's what ultimately happened. But there were many other competing approaches to harmony, many of which were quite a lot more flexible. And the the fact that this has just become the only approach and that this has just remained the case for 250 years, I think is is strange, and that there isn't more of an investigation into maybe a broader way that you could approach harmony rather than having to go through the Roman numerals and uh, doing this sort of functional analysis of classical pieces that everybody does. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that's a very good approach. It's, I, I feel a little bit, you know, cautious, even when I teach private students or, you know, even when I'm trying to discuss this with people that really want to know, you know, what, what path they should follow. It's, I try to be as, as, you know, not dogmatic as all and try to kind of understand uh, their personality as they themselves are discovering it. But uh, but certainly there is plenty of room for all methods that are just, uh, they can be, they can change your mind and they can be very inspirational as well. And not just, you know, we're not just talking about Schoenberg in here. There is, for example, the Zerlino's method. Uh, we have uh, Fuchs, I'm not so sure about it, but, uh, you know, older counterpoint uh, methods that I found somewhat interesting, maybe not totally useful, but it was still worthwhile reading, even just to understand a composer that I liked, even, you know, even from a kind of cultural knowledge perspective. I just wanted to know more about the pieces that I liked and try to understand what I really liked about them. And I couldn't really progress just by listening without trying to understand more of the theoretical context.
for me, the study of counterpoint is is absolutely fundamental. It's, it's very difficult for me to imagine almost any sort of music, actually, without having some grounding in counterpoint. It, it's really quite fundamental, I think. But I think it's it's important to approach counterpoint not as a set of rules or prescriptions, but rather as a set of principles in order to obtain a particular sort of result, which uh, which I would characterize as the ideal of having independent voices that can still exist together with some measure of harmonic coherence. I think that's the that's the ultimate goal is to is to maintain this independence of the voices, and uh, but that's a that's a much more general thing than doing something like studying species counterpoint, for example. So I, I would always try to see the, the the underlying principle behind the technique or behind the approach, rather than again simply memorizing rules, which I think doesn't really get you very far at all. Oh, certainly there is also. It, this is kind of peripheral <laughs> to the techniques themselves, but there is a certain flair in the writing of uh, of a textbook that you know may be attractive. For example, for a while when I was starting, you know, composition, I found Taneyev, Taneyev's counterpoint book, just fascinating. I mean, I didn't really get much out of it. Uh, I don't know if you ever like uh, read or seen the book. It just I have Okay, he he starts he approaches you know invertible counterpoint from kind of mathematical perspective. <laughs> Even the book opens up citing Leonardo da Vinci that, you know, anything that can't be mathematical is not valuable or, you know, I'm paraphrasing it, but something of that sort. And it was just fascinating. There is a certain quality of his writing that I felt attracted to. I mean, it was, uh, it again, if something is too dry, maybe I'm uh, inclined not to, or dogmatic, I'm just inclined not to pay too much attention to it. But mm-hmm. also one more comment about, you know, harmony and counterpoint. I think, you know, speaking again of Schoenberg, he was at some point he was asked, you know, what's the difference between harmony and counterpoint? And I think his answer was a counterpoint is a method, is a technique for composing versus harmony is kind of just, uh, you know, a, a library of, uh, of things that happened and a categorization. So it's kind of like what X or Y composer did. And let's see, you know. How can we categorize all of those choices? So you were saying you were 1920, you discovered Schoenberg, and then this sort of opened a portal to another world that fascinated you. So what were the next steps? I mean, how did you go from essentially having no particular musical ambitions to deciding that this was something you wanted to focus on? Yeah, and, and this is where we return a little bit to be, it being a mystery to me as well. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if how can anybody really know except that there is a certain impulse, there is a certain necessity to just, you know, in the beginning it was not a necessity to express myself because I had such limited tools and I was just trying to understand it. It was more this fascination with trying to understand something that I couldn't understand and that definitely certainly caused emotions, imagination, you know, I had visuals in my mind. I was trying to just kind of live with the music. And, it, it, you know, although I started with Schoenberg and, you know, it's not like a, that radical. I mean, it's so much had happened. But even in my kind of trying to move on from composers and understand what's going on, I pretty much fell into the usual trajectory. So, you know, I liked Verklartenacht before I liked other Schoenberg's uh, compositions. So it's not like I, you know, instantly said, okay, let me listen to Licht and, you know, that, that, that's my thing. 
Um, so I so second Viennese school was kind of like the core of my education. Now, at the same time as I was doing all of this, I was also going to college, you know, and like I mentioned, I, I was interested in economics and I got very far. I mean, I had, I needed a couple more courses to finish it, but I pretty much dropped it and then instead majored in music. So there was a, little, a certain friction in, in college while I was doing kind of my own, you know, out of, being an autodidact of, of sorts going through all this text and listen to music and then being faced with the kind of classroom experience. There was a certain friction in there that never really played a major role, but I remember that was kind of frustrating. Then in terms of influences, we go from second Viennese and just staying within second Viennese, there was a lot of turmoil. But that kind of variegated pretty quickly into um, Darmstadt people, Luigi Nonno, um, Stockhausen at that point didn't really play a major influence, although later on I started uh, uh, really delving into his music. And I've always, and to this day, I've always had an affinity for Italian composers, uh, post-World War II Italian composers. So I find myself attracted to the poetics of Donatoni, Aldo Clementi, Castiglioni, of course, Luigi Nonno, Sherino. So... There is a certain affinity for that uh, very non-unified school of thought. I don't know, you know, maybe maybe Bruno Maderna kind of held everybody together for a while, and then uh, yeah, and then it was just chaos. Um, then another major influence I started getting into Cage and Feldman, and again it was almost a literary approach in the beginning. I read some interviews and conversations with Cage, and I just thought, wow, I mean, this this guy is absolutely, you know, is so mind-boggling. I mean, he, he has he's saying some very interesting things. They're right. I need to examine them. At the same time, I don't really agree with a lot of what he's saying. His music is, uh, you know, I feel very ambivalent between all the different periods, early, middle, and late. And... Um, I also listened, you know, very carefully. I, I, I'm sure you have as well to the conversations Feldman and Cage that they recorded in the '60s. Oh yes, those those are amazing. You can find those on YouTube, and they're fascinating. Yeah, so I would <laughs> I would listen to them, and and uh, that was just a very happy moment, <laughs> just to try to kind of get a perspective. It's it's weird because it's um in that early stage. I mean, now you know I have. Of course, my own opinions, <laughs> and you know, it's. But when you're just starting to learn that, you start picking up these fights that are not really your own, right? It's like I would, um, uh, you know, the controversies or everything that was going on with Boulez, and then I suddenly, you know, I was holding the Boulez flag and just kind of making this imaginary enemies, and all of that kind of eventually is just uh, it just dies away. You, you know, the more confidence you get in your own thoughts and work. Yeah, it's just part of being young. I mean, you're forging an identity, and part of the way that you do that is negative by by resisting the things that don't that don't encapsulate your ideal. Yeah, and and so then, um, if I can think of you know influences, and it's easier for me to just speak of influences just to give kind of a, a general idea of where I was. Um, um, after Cage and Feldman, it was 
kind of like the gates were open at that point. And um, I started gravitating for a while towards Stockhausen, and that's when I really got into his work. And then, and, and, and to this day, you know, I, I, I love his work, and I love, you know, Zanakis was also a big influence at some point. Even even plus minus, even the helicopter string quartet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Even okay, even well, microphone two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe not everything, of course. <laughs> um, and today, I'm almost more fascinated by his um, by whatever he developed in mantra, and the way that he understood, you know, the form in mantra to work. I feel that that's still very useful, actually, um, to to kind of the, the the germination of an idea according to you know whatever happens in those first twelve notes, and then just partitioning the form and, and doing all the different augmentations and, and ratios and, and and so on and so forth. Um, more or less, that was kind of like the influence journey, or at least key people. And, and key groups that kind of held my interest throughout, you know, the, the learning phase. And um, then, in, then of course, we can talk about, you know, kind of compositional techniques and principles of form and so on that I, to this day, that, you know, that I'm using, that I kind of just drew from all of these different sources. Let's pivot now to talking about today. Uh, yeah. With, yeah, so... What do you think the position of the composer is in 2021, uh, creating this sort of music, particularly composers who are coming out of a university situation? What can they hope to to achieve? What sort of conditions can they hope to have? And how do you see the field of composition evolving at this point? Yeah, it's it is such a tough question to even just start thinking about because I have so many conflicting thoughts about it, even in my different roles and positions. You know, as a, as a composer, I'm certainly more opinionated. You know, there's things that I wouldn't do with my music. But then when I start zooming out and thinking, you know, in terms of like, well, curation or just building community, then a lot of other things uh, need to open up. I, I mean, I share the kind of pessimism with a lot of people that um, it doesn't seem like uh, people that are just coming out of school have the, 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 the same framework or kind of, you know, they were taught certain things at school that don't seem to be valid anymore. The, 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 the path to becoming or being a successful composer is, uh, is pretty much in existence. Also, of course, it depends where you are, which region and so on. But, you know, in, in, the, in, in the U.S., if you're not doing something with, you know, audio record, audio technology, you know, audio engineering, or some other thing, on top of composition, I, I see it as very hard to actually make a career. Um, in some other sense, I think it's a little bit. Everything is cyclical, and everything is tied profoundly to the social and political situation currently. So it's, you know, it, it, it's. The current situation should not be a reason to despair because there are so many new things also happening. Of course, internet, uh, is the, the, the kind of the, the globalization that is happening through internet is something to really cheer. And although it comes with its own negative things, of course, it is certainly a way forward. And um, pretty much I hear the negativity. I maybe share some of it in terms of career. 
But then, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's also if composition is really your calling, if you need to write pieces, uh, it's also very easy to discard all of it. It's kind of, um, you just have to do what you have to do and you have to make it happen. And uh, it's tough. There's no real formulas to make that happen. You know, you need to stumble upon the right performers, stumble upon the right kind of um, professional connections that need to like, that they can value your work and promote it. So there's, there's really nothing, you really need that. That's a requirement. I think that's pretty much always been the case in the U.S., that there hasn't really been a path or there hasn't really been a, a, a method for starting a career as a composer in the sense that if you look at the ultra-moderns active in the 1920s, none of them were professional composers. Charles Ives, Carl Ruggles, Ruth Crawford Seeger, Wallingford Rieger, etc., these were not really professional composers. They They composed and they had occasional performances uh, and in some cases, they were they were successful. I mean, Varez was actually fairly successful in New York City in the 1920s, if you were to group him together with with the with the others. But they they weren't really professionals in the sense that someone like you know working on the other side of the Atlantic, someone like Paul Hindemith would have been. Uh, so, and then if you if you fast forward a little bit, certainly people like Cage and Feldman, Earl Brown. Uh, Christian Wolff were not professional composers either. Uh, they they had a very small circle within which they were active and they managed to get things done. But Cage and Feldman were working under the radar for decades and had a very slow time actually becoming established and becoming famous. Although it eventually, when they did become famous, they became extremely famous. <laughs> right. Um, and then in terms of even more recent people, well, uh, Philip Glass, Steve Reich, they, you know, they they drove cabs and things like that, and uh, and basically had to start their careers from scratch, from nothing. So I think, in a certain sense, if you if you look across the 20th century for examples of composers who had a sort of traditional, whatever that means, career as a composer, you really can't find too many. So I don't know if things have changed all that much. I think what has changed maybe is expectations. There there is this idea that composers need to get into academia, they need to get uh, doctoral degrees, and then perhaps they'll be able to find teaching work that will allow them to survive. And, you know, in, in the time that they have available, you know, outside of teaching, they'll be able to compose. I think that that is something that is not viable at all. And right. for the vast majority of students, it's not something that's going to work out for them. Uh, it can have some ancillary benefits. There can be good things that come out of making those contacts and uh, meeting performers and having some kind of professional accreditation and a tiny minority of people will eventually get some kind of employment even though it might not be stable they might be contract lecturers or whatever but we have to accept that for the vast majority of them it's not going to work out that way and i think that's more it's more a question of adjusting expectations uh, than anything else in europe the situation is clearly different because there was a huge push in most of the Western European nations post-World War II to create some kind of professional infrastructure for composers. And to a large extent, a lot of that infrastructure is still in place. Some of it obviously is being dismantled for political reasons or economic reasons, but a lot of it is still there. So it's possible in France, in Germany, in the United Kingdom, 
in the Netherlands to varying degrees to pursue some sort of a career as a composer, find a publisher, get commissions, that sort of thing. Right. That, yeah. And, and that's why I mentioned, you know, this thing is cyclical. I mean, yeah, for sure, there's you know, nothing new under the sun here in the U.S. in terms of how composers have behaved. I mean, there's certain changes here and there. But, but you know, to be honest, I, don't, I also see the situation in Europe as radically changing uh, politically and economically. And, you know, add to the mix COVID. And uh, suddenly we have, you know, we might end up with an unfortunate situation that might resemble more the United States situation than anything else. I'm. I'm not. You know, it's it's country dependent, of course, but um, it 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 doesn't seem too optimistic once we move on from uh, from the pandemic. But I, still, I would say if you're a young composer, it, besides the pragmatic tips, which is you mentioned one of them, you know, try to adjust your expectation. Teaching might not work for everybody. Start looking into other fields that still have a strong connection to music composition, to contemporary music, you know, audio engineering, anything with audio technology. But you can still use those skills and services in other areas that can make you money. So those are pragmatic tips. I think as a composer, at the, at the end, if you still want to write music, nothing is going to stop you. And, uh, you know, one should just concentrate on making the best work that they can. And then after that, after one of them is done, do the second one, third, fourth, and so on. Just... It, th- th- that's all you can really do, I, I think. Yeah, I think it's it's always possible to get the music written somehow. I think what a lot of people struggle with and, and what is possibly the hardest aspect of the equation is getting it performed and getting people to notice it and turning it into something viable. And that is something that I know a lot of younger composers really struggle with. So, But nevertheless, there are phenomenal success stories. There are composers uh, such as... Um, uh, Nico Muley, for example, who is extraordinarily productive and uh, has a constant stream of new projects going on and uh, is very, very busy. So you see people like that. You see people like Thomas Hades as well, who's also a performer, who has a brilliant career. So this is not common, obviously. These are exceptional cases, but it is possible to do to do that in exceptional circumstances. Uh, but I think it's very rare to find people that have both the talent and the skill in terms of the the writing aspect of the work, and then also the ability or the the yeah the 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 skill for for getting noticed and for and for having sufficient opportunities so that they can keep doing it. Yeah, you know, and I'm also thinking there is also another side to this medal, right? Which is if you get the opportunities can you even handle the commissioning life right because that adds uh, certain pressures that uh, in, in in a certain way to to composers that may not be yet prepared for it may even be a worse scenario than actually being in, in the beginning of their career it's basically like try to not rush your compositional development i I read, I don't remember where this was. I mean, it was, again, it was a Sherino writing in a program booklet. But I think he was talking about, I've seen many composers being sacrificed at the Donau Eschigan altar. <laughs> Do you know about this? Mm, no. Okay, so that, that quote in itself was like, okay, what is it talking about? And then he was just mentioning how he's met throughout his life many talented composers, some of which he considered to be better than him. And then progressively seeing them completely get disintegrated, 
because they were not ready for prime time, so to speak. They didn't have yet their conceptual framework or working methods or just ideas were not mature yet to be faced with, okay, now write, you know, five pieces a year or something like that. So that's something to be careful, I think. I mean, that's that's a tip that I would give to to, to my students and to young composers in general. Yeah, it's tricky because, of course, everybody's instinct is to grab every opportunity that comes your way. There's a, there's a feeling of scarcity in the world of composition, the idea that if you don't take a particular opportunity, if you don't do this masterclass, if you don't write this piece, if you don't do this score reading session, somebody else is going to do it, and you're going to lose that opportunity forever. And I think a lot of people are conditioned uh, to just automatically, reflexively say yes to everything. And then that can be something that becomes a habit, you know, and it becomes very, very difficult to say no. And, and this is this is me as a composer not you know, because I, I, I don't write, you know, as much. I mean, the, the, the pieces that I write are usually long, 20, 30 minutes, but the output is not uh, anything approaching something like, uh, I don't know, like Haydn. <laughs> but I find comfort in that, you know, and not just in music, even in film directors, for example, that I love, you know, Tarkovsky, people like Belatar and so on that have, you know, a few films, you know, seven, eight films, and they've kind of just tried to say as much as they can in each in each work. So there's a certain comfort to feeling confident that you are just presenting, you know, um, just uh, you, you're, you're trying to express something that is really born out of a necessity and not necessarily kind of, you know, being the hamster on a wheel trying to, like, you just, just tread and... Uh, get everything done now at the same time you know i i'm also very aware you know it's uh, there's certain economical conditions in here that it's a privilege to get the commission to get this thing so i don't want to sound like i'm not aware of that i mean anybody should definitely jump in and get opportunities but to me it's much more important to kind of preserve some type of integrity in your work and sometimes it becomes very difficult to preserve that if you don't have a plan, if you're not, uh, if your compositions are not mature enough. Hi everyone, this is a short message from your host. I'm proud to share what I hope you will agree are high quality conversations with performers and composers doing compelling work for free. I'd like to keep it that way for a long time to come. But this show does take time and resources to produce, and you can help by becoming a patron of the Samuel Andreev podcast and my YouTube channel. It's incredibly easy and simple. For as little as $5 a month, you can help keep the show going in exchange for exclusive downloads, books, CDs, even personalized conversations and lessons. Please visit www.patreon.com slash for more information, or click the link in the podcast description. Or, if you prefer to make a one-time donation, you can do that at www.samuelandreev.com donate. Nobody will know... What, how large your audience will be. You know, it may be a few people, it may be thousands. It, it's it's a little bit out of your control at the end of the day, you know. Nobody knows what the future holds. But certainly thinking pragmatically to give you the time and space, even, you know, the, 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 the mental fortitude to keep going, it's very difficult, you know. It, it like being a composer and doing other things on the side and the, 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 the two mix, sometimes it's in, in, incongruent. So anything you can do in that direction is certainly like a, a good step forward. And it's, and it's more sincere rather than, you know, the, 
the smuggling of the promise of teaching or the promise of I, I think I've heard you also talk often about you know this uh, that we live that a lot of composers still live in this you know, romantic era right uh, they they want to be venerated the same way that uh, Beethoven was venerated and and it, to a certain degree it, it I none of us lived in that period and I feel nostalgic reading about it just because of how how much music was part of the of the everyday life. Um, so it's an ultimate goal. Ligeti said that, you know, one of his dreams and wishes was for his music to become part of culture. So I think we all aspire to that. But it there's a dangerous path to talking to a young composer that uh, they, they don't have yet the tools to handle so many of these challenges and then you know giving these false hopes i think it, it 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 basically you are raising you know it's like academia may be um um creating its own uh, grave diggers in a way well something i've i've said many times on this podcast in, in which I, I deeply believe to be true is that fundamentally composition doesn't belong in academia it's not an academic subject it has become an academic subject in north america particularly by default, because it's not obvious where it should go besides academia. But it doesn't really belong there, uh, not historically and not socially either, really, for that matter. I'm in favor personally of something closer to an apprentice type of situation in which composition is approached as a, a very, very pragmatically in terms of here's how you establish a practice, here's how you set yourself up, here are the tools that you need to acquire, this sort of thing. But framing it as research uh, so that nobody has to listen to it, I think, is not a very good approach. Yeah, it, it doesn't help anybody. In, in in the long run, it's it's it, it may be de detrimental to... I mean, already, you know, people have all sorts of ideas about academia, some justified and some not justified, but it, it's certainly this this confluence of, of roles has contributed somewhat to to a lot of misunderstandings. Well, it creates a misunderstanding to the extent that when you're ensconced within academia, let's say you're in the middle of a five-year program uh, and you're able to get a stipend and you've got an okay living situation and maybe you're doing some assistant teaching work, then that, that's okay for five years because you can sort of live in that world. The problem is you're stuck in a, in a bubble without necessarily even realizing it and without having a clear vision for what's going to happen afterwards. And statistically, the odds of you landing a decent enough teaching job so that you can make a living from that are, are most definitely not in your favor. So I think there is some danger in that, in getting too comfortable with the idea that this, this can be a sort of artificial life support system that will just keep you going indefinitely. And it's a rude awakening for a lot of people when they realize that that's in fact not going to happen. But, but I'm not negative about this in the sense that what I do see is the emergence of entirely new models, possible models of how a composer can exist in the world and how their work can get out and affect the world. And that for me is cause for significant optimism because we're seeing a technological revolution, the likes of which the world has never seen before. I mean, that's, that's clear. And composers are amongst the various groups of people that I think can seriously benefit from that, provided that they're willing to try to understand these new technologies, which after all are actually not that new anymore, but um, try to understand the new world that this creates and what sort of opportunities that can provide. 
And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is because you're definitely engaged in that in a serious way. And I wanted to, to hear more about that, about your work with Score Follower and what that project is attempting to do. Currently, Score Follower as it exists today is an organization that, you know, the main work we end up uploading and publishing on YouTube on two channels. But we have current projects in development and there's going to be many more future objects. So now it's like an, or- an umbrella organization that handles, you know, multiple aspects of just contemporary music life. Um, uh, but in the beginning, it was just two channels and they, they didn't even, you know, they weren't even part of the same group of people. It was Incipitify, which was uh, created in uh, July 2012 by um, somebody named Josh, um, very anonymous and, you know, he he prefers to stay anonymous and mysterious character who was doing a, a, a lot of work, basically just contacting composers and making available, you know, his email to just feature any sort of music. And he was making the score videos. But then in 2013, just a year later, Dan Trampton, like I mentioned, he opened up a channel, Score Follower. The first piece, by the way, that was published on this channel is Pierluigi Bilona's One Plus One Equal One. So... The, the way he, the way Dan describes it is, okay, here is a piece that I find absolutely fascinating. I love it, and I want to share it with people. Like, imagine not having something like a score or video or anything. What are all the steps that one would need, or the hurdles that one would need to go through to just share a piece of music that they love? You know, if they would need to have access to a university, to a library, that library needs to have access to the score. If it doesn't have access to the score, then you need to order it through all sorts of, you know, mechanisms and world catalog and so on. You basically need to be matriculated as a student. Uh, then you need to be able to kind of understand the the the, the, the rhetoric, the poetics, the, the compositional language of the piece. Then you need to have access to the recording. And so on and so forth. You have all these hurdles that pretty much uh, it, it guarantees that this music stays within a small circle and it can never travel locally, let alone globally. So initially, you know, he opened this channel simply to share kind of just the music that, that he liked, basically. It was kind of like a playlist of what uh, one likes. Uh, but bringing now score, audio, you know, all of that together so that it, it becomes really accessible and, you know, almost free. I mean, there is some, you know, there's certain costs associated, like internet connection and so on, but we can assume that, you know, majority of people today have easy access to those, to those types of things. Um, but later on, close to a year later, uh, Josh actually decided to just, uh, he, you know, for various, for health reasons to, uh, he, he couldn't continue the work on Incipitify anymore. So he contacted, contacted Dan and said, uh, I'm giving you this channel. Can you run it? And that's the point where Score Follower as an organization was born. Because suddenly, you know, we have now two major channels. First of all, there's a lot of work. You need to distribute it and you need to bring new people. But also, and today, you know, we feel this very much. It's uh, it, it, it becomes sort of responsibility. It's... Uh, if your audience grows, and I'm sure you, I'm sure you feel this uh, with your own endeavors, YouTube channel, and so on, then you you get a little bit of responsibility 
towards the community as a whole. So 2000, end of 2014-15 is where Score Followers as an organization was born. And so I, uh, Zach Thomas and uh, Victoria Chia was on board as kind of executive directors. And that's where really the, the work of Score Follower as an organization starts. So what, what we try to do is to provide access to contemporary music for all without any barriers. Um, and then... How do, how do you define contemporary music? Sorry, uh, it, music in general. Uh, I mean, it's the stylistic differences and so on. I mean, if, if somebody looks at the channel, there's certainly... I mean, there's certainly biases, right? I mean, if we have curators and the directors also curate, so you cannot really escape the music that you like to share and those type of biases. But we have, throughout the years, we've found different methods on how we can be more equitable in this, in, in bringing in different music. For example, by bringing in different curators, different local communities um, that will hopefully curate works that I would have never thought of or somebody else would have never thought of. It's sort of, it's sort of like you're running a festival in a way, but a kind of dematerialized festival. And the, the idea of, of, of having multiple curators is certainly an attractive one because there are many festivals, certainly in Europe, also in North America and other places, that have the same artistic director for 20, 30 years. And it very quickly becomes a small circle of composers that they're going to support. Uh, it's inevitable, and that, that's not to blame any directors. I think it's, it would be impossible to avoid that just be, by virtue of the fact that it, everybody has their circle and their and their biases and, and the, the things that they like. But, uh, but you can see that the limitations also in that sort of approach. So having multiple curators seems like a, a, an intelligent way to, to deal with that. Right, and it also addresses this problem of, you know, because you, you can't... Or maybe you can, but it's difficult to run something from the internet on a global level without really connecting with local communities, with your own circles. So bringing in curators is a, a, a way to mitigate that. You know, it's it's not, you know, if, if we bring in a curator and they have an exciting vision for the channels and for the organization, they are encouraged to look into their own circles. And of course we rotate them and there's you know a variety of different people over the years. So we found out that that is a model that, um, it's basically the distinction between fandom and the network. Um, pieces, composers that we feature and the connections that we make is more like a network. Everyone is kind of interested in strengthening this network because at the end of the day, everyone is kind of benefiting, benefiting from sharing. Uh, so it's it's not so much a fandom model. It's not that anybody that venerates the directors or anything like that. So, so so, but but who is score follower for? I mean, and how how precisely would you be willing to d describe the intended audience for this project? And the reason I ask that is, I know there are a lot of younger composers for whom their audience is other composers and that's effectively how they conceptualize it to themselves and that's what they're aiming for uh, they view it as a kind of global community more or less global but also obviously local uh, of of composers who are going to express some measure of interest in their work and those are the people that they're ultimately writing for um, 
My personal view is that I, I try to open things as widely as possible so that it's not simply uh, a, a kind of in-group of composers talking to themselves, but rather something that is addressed to the culture at large, which is a challenging thing to do uh, these days particularly, but which I think is absolutely necessary. Yeah, it's it, that's exactly our target. It's as large as possible, basically. And music notation is not the only part that we feature, right? We have like a series called Mediated Score, which completely bypasses uh, the score for other means of displaying and documenting the work. I mean, even a video performance could serve as a documentation of a certain piece or concept. But in general, it's for um, the, the people that say that they don't know how to appreciate, you know, contemporary classical music, but music just e even on a broader level, music that can be documented and presented on some type of video format. And, you know, they might do that because they might feel some distance from the particular concept. They're not exposed to the rhetoric of, you know, the composition. But uh, I think regardless is we try to, 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 to think of the broadest possible audience so that anyone who wants to listen should be able to do that without any barriers. And, you know, beyond that, it's a little, it, it's kind of a moving target. We're just, we're casting a really wide net. Yeah, I, I think there's two things about that. So on the one hand, that's what I try to do. And I, I think that's, a, that's definitely a good goal. I think that it should, be, it should be made available to the widest possible public because we're creating, we're creating cultural uh, works that are intended for people to listen to, not, not merely a, a small field of specialists. At the same time, though, if, if we were to frame this in terms of the language of marketing, it's very difficult to uh, to build anything uh, to to get something out there if you don't have some kind of a target in mind. So saying that it's for everybody sounds good in principle, but it makes it very difficult to market what you're doing. Yeah, of, I mean, it's you know the background of the directors and the many people that work for us, you know, that volunteer and so on and so forth. I mean, it's obviously the background of kind of trained, formally trained composers where the written music notation is, plays a major emphasis. So speaking personally now, it's, well, it's the kind of music that I love and, uh, you know, I, I'd like to share. And, and the, the funny thing is that maybe some people have a concept of contemporary music being one thing. I've, my God, I've heard so many different like kind of boxing of contemporary music in one category or the, rather, you know, or another, usually kind of being dismissive. And um, in a negative sense, sometimes it may be that. But I think it would be good to redefine contemporary music as not being strictly academic music or something that... Uh, you know, people wouldn't want to approach or it's tough or it's uh, difficult to listen to, it doesn't care about the audience and so on. So I think part of the project, there is, in a way, there's two separate projects. Part of the project is to redefine. This contemporary music is actually quite a bit wider than it's made to be, than it's artificially made to be or, or talked. At least I've encountered multiple talks where I feel like it's way too restrictive and it's not representative of what contemporary music is. And in some other sense, score followers, just the name, in, in one sense, is just you're following the score on a video. But 
in quite another, we're kind of following the trend. We're following the trend of the score as it's progressing through time. So the score as a document, d- documentation artifact, the score as an instructions manual and so on. And that's why the variety of videos that we have, I mean, we have some videos that may be, you know, considered pop music. There are some that are just, that they're so variegated and the, the concept of what the score represents, we're kind of tracking that in real time. And that's, that's an exciting part of the project. Yeah, so, so one of the things that I got from what you just said is that there's part of the project is an attempt to redefine the public image of contemporary music, that it's not simply a kind of academic music for specialist audiences. Uh, it doesn't necessarily sound like what you might expect it to sound like, and it's much broader than a lot of people might think. And I think that's certainly a, a, an important goal. In terms of audience numbers, subscriber numbers, views, and that sort of thing, how how closely do you pay attention to the, the metrics? And do you have any specific goals in mind for how big you would like the channel to get? Yeah, I think we're all very data-driven on a certain level. So we're paying close attention to all sorts of metrics. And I couldn't tell you... Uh, a number, but uh, the number needs to be as as big as possible, and and we can move in like in circles. Okay, let's say we have the attention of contemporary composers, um, but there's you know classical musicians that you know even people that are adversarial towards uh, their concept of contemporary music. Well, those are still easier to bring into the fold than, you know, somebody who doesn't even care about any, you know, acoustic music or anything like that. So that's a, a bigger circle that we're trying to, to aim for, just general musicians. Then there are other circles, right? It's um, artists, people that work with media, visual artists, uh, writers, and so on. And, and then we can, you know, bigger and bigger until we can reach at some point, at some level, some type of, um, I mean, even like viral content that suddenly, you know, uh, people that are not associated at all, they don't even know what, what we're doing. They just stumble upon this, they find it cool, they subscribe, and then, you know, they're kind of, um, they're kind of hooked. And hopefully it, it piques their interest for a long time. So the, the, the plan is not really number specific, it's kind of as big as possible, but kind of trying to move within this larger, larger and larger circles. It's, it's a, almost a, you know, a utopic project, let's, let's put it that way, but we're, we're really trying hard to do that. Yeah, so the interesting thing about what you're saying is that in principle, the audience numbers are indefinitely expandable. There's no upper limit to it. And that's something that's actually quite exciting, I think. Uh, you're no longer bounded to the number of people that can attend a concert or the number of people that are going to buy a CD. It can be much larger than that, much broader. And in in my case, I really don't know what the upper limit is. I have no idea. I suspect it's much higher than most people would imagine. And part of the reason for that is uh, there are a lot of people out there who are interested in all sorts of forms of culture but for whom, at least in the past, there would have been just simply too many barriers to accessing it, whether it be documents that are too difficult to find, um, whether they're too expensive, whether it's you know there's no one in their social circle that nobody knows anything about that sort of work. And suddenly we're in a situation where all of those barriers can be removed. 
And I think it's going to be extremely interesting to see what the result of that is, because there's no longer really any excuse to not engage with the materials, with the documents, with the with the recordings. It's it's there. It's available for everybody. It's free. And who knows what that's going to do, what that's what effect that's going to have. Well, and, and the good thing is that very young, interested people, not necessarily composers, but composers for sure, seem to be more open to everything, to different styles, to different periods, to all sorts of stuff. And, you know, in a recent conversation I had with, uh, for example, Chris Dench, I think he put it as like, um, uh, they don't see a difference between Otecker and Aaron Cassidy. They're just uh, points on a musical continuum. So that's that's an exciting project for, for Score Follower in general. It's to try to cast this wide net of people that we know eventually will be interested they don't have the means, they don't have the access. And it's it's something really tough to get into as, you know, nobody, like I said in the very early on, nobody starts liking Licht. You know, it's, uh, there's a sort of organic progression to one's tastes and to trying to understand what's really going on. So concretely, how much of your time does this take? And, and also, what impact has Score Follower had upon your career as a composer? For the second question, I'm not really sure. I think uh, it had a sort of impact for everybody on the team just to be kind of thrown into you know the the scene and become known and just creating connections and you know all the emails and all the correspondences and so on and so forth. So that certainly has an impact because um, if if anything, name recognition. It's not like that is you know. Uh, the greatest thing in the world, but it still is something. But in terms of hours put, we, we really do put a lot of hours in it. I mean, sometimes we're putting in, overall, we've put in thousands of hours, but 20 to 30 hours per person, just the four directors. I think the, the majority of the work gets done, you know, all sorts of ad, admin, curation, production, you know. So we sometimes get to the 20 to 30 hours a week, which... Uh, is very challenging and is certainly a cue for us to start, you know, thinking seriously about um, trying to pivot this project because it's almost it's, it's impossible not to maintain, you know, five different jobs, including that of composing and trying to keep an active career as a composer. So we are really seriously looking into trying to make score follower more or less as a part-time but even more permanent position so that we can actually. Um, in a way, get paid for the work that we're already doing. Well, it's I want like, to uh, underline how remarkable it is that you and the other people on the team would be devoting 20 to 30 hours of your own time to a project that really is not for your personal glory, but rather is intended to improve the conditions for composers generally, and also to uh, to make things much more accessible to a, to a broad audience. And you're doing this you know, really, uh, I think out of out of uh, the, the the love of the work itself, but also out of a, a desire to make a positive contribution, a positive impact, and I think that's an extraordinary thing to do. But I also think that for composers, it's worth paying attention to the success that these sorts of um, these sorts of channels and other outlets are having, because it's an indication that when you adopt what I would call a contribution mentality as opposed to an extraction mentality, interesting things start to happen. Yeah, 
yeah, certainly. I mean, it's um, it's 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 a lot of hard work, and uh, you know, thirty hours thirty hours a week that would be like an absolute maximum. You know, it's 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 more or less an average, anywhere between ten to thirty. But it's still way too much for being able to maintain all these different activities that we we each do. So it is also absolutely true that if you have the privilege that you can do this work for the benefit of the community while you know not starving to death things really start happening and you can really achieve precisely because of the new technologies globalization the way that uh, we are all interacting with each other so that really makes it possible and uh, it it's it's an exciting thought to think well you know what if more and more people did similar projects and you know it kept growing can we at some point reach a critical mass where we can make demands? I don't know to whom, uh, maybe institutions, maybe general public, you know, through some type of individual donations and so on. I, I'm, I'm not, that's where the waters get kind of murky. You know, of course, you introduce money into the equation and then uh, <laughs> everything uh, kind of changes. <laughs> but um, it, at, at some point... When you reach a critical mass, then you can really make demands and maybe things can really change, uh, you know, financially as well as culturally. I think making the transition to something monetized is a, a delicate process. It can go well or it can go badly. Uh, and that's something certainly to pay close attention to. But it seems to me that Score Follower is extraordinarily well known, certainly within this community and also outside of it. And that's something that I think is just worth paying attention to as a phenomenon is the fact that I frequently get contacted by composers, by by music lovers of all stripes who find out about my work through Score Follower. And I'm certainly grateful uh, for the work that you've done and your team to create such a platform and to keep keep it running. But it's just amazing to me how broad the impact is. I mean, some of the videos on Score Follower have tens of thousands of views. And that's a very significant impact. If you have to, you have to figure that, in, if you were a contemporary composer, or just a composer, I, I, yeah, I don't need to say contemporary composer. Let's say if if you were just a composer in the nineteen seventies or nineteen eighties, writing chamber music or whatever it was, your audience would essentially be the people attending that concert. Maybe a small number of people that would hear a cassette recording or something, or in exceptional circumstances that might hear a broadcast, but your audience would be quite small. Uh, you know, you'd be probably lucky if you had 50 or 100 people go to a concert. And now, you know, if you have a really successful video on Score Follower, you could have an audience in the tens of thousands. And that's not a small difference. That's a that's an order of magnitude difference in terms of audience sizes. Right, yes, yeah, because so, you're reaching in so many different geographic locations now. And it, in a way, it parallels this division between uh, in different areas, right? Mainstream media versus, you know, uh, YouTube independent channels and so on, which, you know, it's, it's kind of baffling how much uh, financial power some, uh, some media station might have with a really meager the amount of views when you know, you know you have creators on YouTube or elsewhere uh, kind of giving them a, a huge run for their money basically absolutely I mean it would be interesting to know what the audience size is for 
the sort of contemporary music programs that you see on the BBC or Radio France or, or Swiss Radio or whatever it would be, compared to the audience of something like Scorefall or, or some of the other larger uh, music channels on YouTube? I went into, uh, I, I, I tried to read almost every paper I could find on audiences for radio programs. And uh, it was, it was kind of hard to find. They, they, they give these metrics as like bundles and it's not very clear. I, if, if anybody, if anybody's listening to this and actually has some numbers, that'd be really fascinating to share. Yeah, I haven't come across any so far. So we can only guess. But um, right, so how do you see the channel developing in the next four or five years? What are some projects that you're working on? So we started doing uh, the Score Follower Library Initiative, which is, it's basically a search tool. It's one thing to be subscribed to the channels and to watch videos, but ensembles, uh, professors, performers, music lovers, whatever, they, you need a certain you know, granularity whenever you're searching for something. It's basically the difference between passive discovery which is you're subscribed to the channel and you're passively, you know, following versus active discovery where you know what you're looking for and you need to input the right search terms. Now, YouTube search is, you know, it's phenomenal, it's amazing, but it is not really optimized for music, let alone contemporary music, you know, trying to type in, I don't know, trio, accordion, bass, bass clarinet and trombone. Uh, you're going to find a bunch of results in there that absolutely have nothing to do with whatever you've searched. So the Score Follower Library was an attempt to now take the catalog and build kind of advanced, uh, faceted search with multiple dimensions. So year of composition, instrumentation, ensemble names, composers, nationalities, and so on, and kind of categorize them so that now that search is... is I mean, we on the team... Uh, I don't find myself anymore even searching on YouTube. If I if I need something from our channels, I immediately just go to the site and then search for the piece, and it's it's there, you know, in a, in a matter of seconds. So that was an initiative that we just we kind of went official um, six months ago, but we started to to really put some development work in that last year, last summer during COVID. Um, so we're gonna try to develop that, and then there's a few other projects which I can't really. <laughs> talk about right now but they are related to that library um kind of you can think of it as more of like diy so maybe giving the tools to people to start you know kind of creating their own stuff um which may or may not end up on score follower channel yeah that's really exciting so and i can see why you would want to bring some additional people on board because that sounds like a pretty crazy schedule three or four uploads a week is a lot (laughs) I can say having had having a YouTube channel myself, my my frequency of uploads is considerably less than that, unfortunately. But well, uh, yeah, but you're you know some of the videos that you're doing is you know pretty in depth analysis and so on. So it's it's a different it's a different thing altogether. After you do, you know, uh, when you're basically in this business for as long, it's kind of you just become really efficient. But but certainly the upload schedule is uh, maybe maybe our limit might be five. A week. I don't think we just because there is also exhaustion from that. You know, we there is a fine point where if there's too much, you know, we don't want necessarily like to for pieces to be, um, you know, lost 
in between the cracks of other videos, basically. Well, there's a question of audience saturation at a certain point as well. I mean, how much of the content are your subscribers willing to, to click on? And I think that's that's an issue for everybody who has a channel, is, is getting that balance right. You don't want to disappear for so long that people forget who you are. But if you're throwing up three hours of content every week, then people might not have time to absorb it. So one of the things that struck me looking through your own catalog of works is you've got a series of opus numbers for titles, <laughs> which I think is is really unique. I, I don't know many composers that that have done that. How did you decide to name your works in that way? It's it's one of those things that didn't really take much thought. It's just my natural inclination. But uh, I understand that that can come across, and I, I've come across both people that uh, you know absolutely hate that fact, as well as people that think that that might just be some type of postmodernist, you know, ir ironic interpretation of uh, the history of naming opus numbers. So. For me, the first impulse was that I'm just, um, whenever I came up with a title, uh, I felt like it was always doing a disservice to the piece. It was trying to kind of crystallize a concept. And, and by the way, I fully understand why people you know, have titles and what advantages those titles bring. I mean, there is many pieces in the history of music here that uh, wouldn't be even as famous if it didn't have such a, ca a catchy title or something that caught somebody's imagination. But personally, whenever I try to think of a concept and, and, and like I mentioned, uh, kind of condense it as if it represents the piece, I always felt uncomfortable uh, about that because my listening and understanding of the piece kept changing. So if my own understanding keeps changing, I feel like I was kind of subjecting my audience and listeners to something that, um, well, didn't feel like it represented the music. Secondly, I have maybe an innate aversion a little bit to titles. I just tend to ignore them. I don't, I don't even, you know, I don't even read them. I, I feel like majority of cases, they almost uh, distract me from, from the music. So coming up with exactly why opus, you know, okay, well, it could have been number. And I, I, just, I just felt like, well, we have this system. It's been used for centuries. It literally just means work. And it's a chronological way of organizing the work that is being published. So I, that's, that's exactly what I did. Now, I should mention, though, that by doing this, obviously, I am removing certain advantages that come from the titles. I mean, I am very, um, I get certainly very affected by literature and poetry and so on. So there is something that definitely I am consciously missing but I try to supplement that for the performers in the scores themselves there might be epigraphs quotations that appear on the title that is just something for the performers to know it's not necessarily for the audience so it still gives them some type of literary imaginative or visual auditory some type of connection that they can latch onto you know, without even beginning the work. So that's that's kind of been the that's kind of the history of the the naming of the works.
The other thing that struck me was how uh, each of your works really is a is a complete sort of self-contained project in many respects. The the pieces really are quite different from each other, uh, and each one has a markedly different instrumentation. So you don't seem to do the same thing twice, and there are definitely recognizable fingerprints across all of your work. But I'm struck by how sharply defined each project is. So I wonder if that is a conscious decision, if there's a lengthy process of deciding what you're going to do and how would you frame the project before you start working, how, how would you describe that? So very early on, I noticed something that after I had acquired a sort of technical baggage in, for composition, I realized that as I can generate some material and I can finish the work pretty quickly, but then once, if I finish it, then it, 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 was, it was lacking because the concept for the piece was not mature enough. So in a way, why this works, and I'm, and I'm glad that you're saying this, it is certainly conscious. It's kind of, yeah, they do represent universes. At least I, I hope, you know, that you can't escape from one work to the next. Certainly there is uh, similarities. But part of why they're different is because it reaches a point of frustration. I don't try to sit down and compose, you know, on a daily basis. 
for the reason that then I'm afraid that I might just finish something and then that's it, then I need to move on. So I, it's almost like this process of frustration to the point of absolute necessity. When the idea is, you know, for the time and place, of course, I look back at some things and it's like, oh, I wish, you know, some things turn out differently. But for the time and place, it's, it's the best that I could have done. And it was the... It, it was the best idea that I can present. So that may contribute to that uh, thing that you mentioned. And of course, I also, you know, I, part of my toolkit, let's say, you know, the concept of uh, rereading, like, I mean, form is very important for me. So rereading in a post-structuralist sense, you know, which uh, I'm thinking, you know, developed by Moderna uh, and then, you know, influenced composers like Donatoni, Berio, and so on. It's try to think of an opus number as a universe, and then you can do different rereadings within that universe. So you might have, for example, you know, opus six for violin and piano, but then there is another work that I wrote recently, Fragment from Opus Six. It's it's not a transcription, it's a very different trajectory, but that still inhabits the same universe. And I feel like I can do something like this because there is uh, some type of space and time separating these different projects. I'm not sure if I would be able to bring um, maybe this type of clarity if um, it was just like continuous, you know, one after the other kind of deal. So thank you so much, Amir, for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Samuel, it's a great pleasure for me. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll keep in touch and uh, keep up the great work. I, I really love what you're doing with the podcast. Mm-hmm.